All right, let's all stand together, and we're going to look at a message today I call Without Remedy, uh, Proverbs chapter 29, and verse 1. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. And may God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. Our purpose this morning is to consider God's dealings with humanity so that they might be saved. This is given to us in this very solemn passage that we have before us in Proverbs chapter 29 that we'll consider carefully in its four integral parts, very clear, very simple. Uh, this is not something that requires a whole lot of commentary for us to understand. It's very straightforward, very serious. He that being often rebuked hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. But before we get to that, I want us to look at a New Testament corresponding passage that also gives us a lot of information about how God deals with humanity so that they might be saved. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Right up front in this passage, we can see that God wants all men to be saved. How do I know that? Because the passage says it. Uh, God would have all men to be saved. God seeks the humanity, the salvation of humanity. Jesus himself described his own ministry by saying, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. God wants people to be saved. Now there's a lot of people in the religious world today, and they're being, in fact, they're flooding the Christian world today with the idea that God doesn't want everyone to be saved. And the only problem that I have with that is that this passage very clearly says that God would have all men, all men, uh, to be saved. And, and, and ladies, let's understand that includes you too, just in case somebody is not getting that clear. Uh, man in this passage means humanity. God would have all of humanity, all people to be saved. There's other passages. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe these things command and teach. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. All men. Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, it was a time of ignorance. And what Paul is speaking of in Acts chapter 17 was uh, their idolatrous worship of him. He, he was standing there on Mars Hill surrounded by all of the idols of the ancient city of Athens. And they were ignorantly worshiping then one that they had built an idol to. They said the unknown God. Now God never commanded anybody to build an idol to him and worship him in that way. 
But they had a lot bigger problem than the fact that they had built an altar to God that God had never told them to build. God overlooked that because they had bigger problems. They didn't know God. <laughs> they needed to be saved. The times of this ignorance, and God winked at. Why? Because He commanded all men everywhere to repent. That means to turn to Him. To turn to Him. John the Baptist came preaching the message of repentance. Jesus Christ came and preached the message of repentance. Repent, he said, and believe the gospel. Now, I'm a long way this morning from exhausting the supply of passages that describe God's dealings with humanity uh, that they might be saved. And I'm talking about all of humanity, not just a certain few. But still, in spite of that, there are many people who buy into the idea that God only loves certain people, that Jesus only died for certain people, that God has chosen some, and they're the only ones who's going to be saved, and the rest of them just too bad for you. Now, you might think that I'm uh, just uh, uh, being a little sarcastic about that, and I might be just slightly, just slightly, but uh, I have described for you the essence of what a lot of folks are believing and teaching in our world today. It's very popular. And so there's a lot of folks who have a problem with the first part of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3, that God would have all men to be saved. But then there's also a lot of people who have a problem with the second part of it. If there's one God, now remember we're talking about God's effort to reach humanity, how that God wants humanity to be saved. And the first part of it is that God wants everybody to be saved. God would have all men to be saved, everybody. But then it also tells us that there is only one God, there is also one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. The word mediator means the one who can go between, the one who can bridge the gap, the one who can stand between a holy and righteous God and a sinful humanity. And there's only one, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, I love you folks today, and I love preaching the Word of God, but I want you to know I cannot be a mediator, neither can any other man be a mediator. No priest, no preacher, nobody can stand between you and God as a mediator. How do I know that? This passage says it. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This church, nor any other church, can serve as the mediator between God and man. How do I know it? This passage says it. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So a lot of people have a problem with the idea uh, when we think about God and His efforts to reach humanity. God would have everybody to be saved. A lot of people have a problem with that. A lot of people have a problem with the second part of this, uh, that there's one God and there's only one mediator between God and man. And that's the man Christ Jesus. In a practical way, brothers and sisters, what this means to us is that there is only one way to be saved. Only one. And that is through Jesus Christ. That is a horribly unpopular thing in our world today. It goes against the thinking of anybody. Don't, uh, doesn't God recognize the sincerity of people? I mean, people get offended. And they'll say things like this. Can, 
all these different religious beliefs all around the world. And if, the, if, if people today believe in God at all, they believe that all sincere beliefs are equally valid, that we're free to choose our own religion, whatever that might be, choose our own God, path to God, whatever that might be, and whatever God that might be, and all of them then somehow equally sincere. How can you guys say, I can tell you real quick that when I say that there's one God and one mediator between God and man, I did not make it up. This is in the Word of God. Paul wrote it to Timothy a long, long time ago. He wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It was God-breathed because it's God's own truth. In a very practical way, if it was possible to be saved just any way we would decide, then Jesus Christ died for nothing. If you could be saved apart from the cross, then why would God come down to this earth in the presence of Jesus Christ, be born of the Virgin Mary, live among us, die on the cruel cross if we could be saved some other way? Nobody was more sincere about being saved and thinking they knew how to be saved than the Old Testament Jews who believed that by keeping the works of the law that they would gain God's favor, that they would be righteous, that they would go to heaven when they die because they had kept the law. Nobody was more sincere than they were. But Paul addressed that in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 when he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness came by the law, Christ is dead in vain. Christ died for nothing. So we put over all such thinking, the words of the Proverbs itself, God's ancient message of wisdom to us, includes Proverbs 14, 12, which says, There's a way that seemeth right unto man, and the end thereof is a way of death. And by the way, there's Proverbs 16, 25, that also says there is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof is the way of death. God said it twice. Doesn't God recognize human sincerity and the fact that they sincerely believe these other things? Doesn't that count? How can you say that there's only one way to be saved? Because the Bible says it. Because if there were any other way, if we could make up our own plan, then there was no reason for Jesus to die on the cross. So in God's dealings with humanity, we see some crucial and critical points that are given to us in 1 Timothy uh, that I have brought up to you for good reason. I hope you understand. Uh, God, number one, wants everyone to be saved. And in God's dealings with humanity, to me, that's a critical point. God wants everybody to be saved. And that Jesus Christ is the only way that anyone can ever be saved. Two crucial points in God's dealings with man. God wants us to be saved. And God provided the way for us to be saved. 
And it's against that backdrop then that we have a better means of understanding this Old Testament warning that God gave so long ago. Closing out almost his book of wisdom for us, Proverbs 29. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. So I want us to see, first of all, this morning, God's spiritual rebuke. He who is often, often rebuked, often rebuked. If God only reached out to any one of us one time to convict us of our sins and to show us that we needed to be saved, had God only rebuked us once, we would have all got something more than we ever deserved. It was God's grace just to reach out to us once. But the Bible doesn't say once. But he that being often, often rebuked. Most of us can give a testimony. And, I can, and I've said it many times. As far as I know and as far as I can remember, I was saved the first time I ever got under conviction. I was seven years old. was having a revival meeting. The preacher preached about salvation. He talked about how that everybody was a sinner and the wages of sin is death. And I figured out, hey, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. I gave the invitation. I tried to respond. My sister wouldn't move and let me out, but my mama caught me. And somehow that afternoon, the preachers mysteriously showed up at our house to talk to me about being saved. It was a miracle. <laughs> no, it wasn't a miracle. My mama saw it. As far as I know, the first time I was ever convicted of my sins and shown that I needed to be saved, I was saved. But all around this building, other people can give different testimony. And you can all say, thank you, God, to Proverbs chapter 29 that says, He who is often rebuked. There are many, many ways that God reaches out to humanity in order to show them their need for salvation. And the first way that God rebukes us is through sin itself. We can put down this simply and plainly, sin hurts. And sin doesn't satisfy. Sin itself then is a means that God uses to rebuke humanity and to show us our need then of salvation. Sin not only does not satisfy, but sin creates a gnawing hunger and a sense of dissatisfaction. So that the more that people sin, the more that people turn to sin, the more they want to sin. It increases then, it, it demands an ever-increasing involvement in sin. It produces that gnawing hunger and a vague sense of dissatisfaction. The more people sin, the more they want to sin, the less they get out of it. The Bible talks often about the sin of greed, for example, the love of money. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10, the Bible says, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. And he who loves abundance with increase. Why? Because sin doesn't satisfy. Once that person turns to greed, the love of money, then there is no amount of money that is ever going to fill the hole that it puts in their heart and life. They'll never be satisfied. That's the way sin is. Sin never brings peace. It only brings pain. And it doesn't matter if it's sexual sin or substance abuse or greed or lies or whatever. It never brings peace. Even saved people who turn to sin 
forfeit the joy of Jesus and the peace that it brings. Sin, sin does not satisfy. You see, God doesn't take away from humanity the opportunity to sin. But sin itself is designed to bring that pain and all those problems just to show us that sin's not what we need. The second way that God rebukes us then is through the Holy Spirit. God is on the throne in heaven. Jesus Christ, the Bible pictures as sitting on the right hand of God. And yet throughout the world this morning, the blessed Holy Spirit is in full operation, demonstrating the omnipresence of God. That is that God is present everywhere. And through the Holy Spirit then, He is constantly working to reprove or to rebuke mankind and to show them their need for salvation. Jesus said that in John chapter 16 and verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is also to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send, you to, send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you will see me no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. He is constantly at work then to bring conviction to the world. And that conviction is a spiritual discomfort, a sense of rebuke, the awareness that something is wrong. Now, the primary sin that the Holy Spirit works on us is the worst sin of all. And we'll argue with God over this, but the worst sin of all is unbelief. How do we know that? Because it is unbelief that condemns people to an eternity in hell. How do I know that? Because John says it. John chapter 3 and verse 18, this is Jesus. Uh, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is what? Condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. It is that refusal to believe in Jesus Christ that causes a person to face the condemnation of God. Jesus Christ came to this earth and suffered Calvary. And that person who turns his back on the cross has refused to believe. R.G. Lee called that high treason against heaven's king. What kind of king would die for us? This kind. The kind that loves us. The Holy Spirit then is working to bring that sense of conviction, that troubled feeling in the heart and in the mind, a burden of sin, a dissatisfaction with life. It causes people to be troubled at the concept of God. It's why people are scared of church. <laughs> it's kind of funny when you think about it. Why are y'all scared to come to church? Well, if I go to church, the house is not going to fall in. That's not what they're scared of. Our roof is pretty sound. It may leak a little bit. It's not the roof falling in that they're scared of at all. They're scared of what goes on here. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So God rebukes us then. And the first thing that He does, He that being often rebuked, the first way that God rebukes us is through sin itself. Sin doesn't satisfy. 
The second way that He rebukes us is through the Holy Spirit as He convicts us, convinces us of our need of a Savior. The last way that He rebukes us is through the Scripture. Verse 19 of John chapter 3, this is the condemnation then, going back to that passage, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. The light is the truth of God, the truth of God that is revealed to us in this book. There's a reason why the Bible is hated more than any other book of any other religion and any other uh, holy nature uh, considered holy in any part of the world. There's a reason why that the Bible's been banned from China. There's a reason why uh, that the Bible faces that kind of animosity. People hate the light. Because it convicts them, it rebukes them, it points out their need of a Savior. I recently heard about a preacher who was talking to a diver, and he was giving his testimony about how he was saved. And as a diver, he'd gone down the ocean many times, and this one he saw on the ocean floor, a bottle had a cork in it, inside of it obviously was a message, and he was curious, so he went down underwater, <laughs> opened a bottle, popped the cork, pulled it out, and there on a piece of paper he said was John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And he said, you know, if God loves me enough to follow me to the bottom of the ocean, I think I probably need to be saved. And he was saved. That was his testimony. I want you to know this morning God loves you a lot more than following you to the bottom of the ocean. If you want to see the love of God, you see it on the cross of Calvary. God loves you. God wants you to be saved. Day after day and night after night, you see the Holy Spirit is at work, and He speaks in the hearts of men. He woos them. He speaks best in the silence, and I'm convinced that's why people walk around with something playing all the time. They can't stand the silence because the Holy Spirit speaks in the silence with that still, small voice of conviction. God is working he is constantly working, and he often reproves us. He reproves by our sin that doesn't satisfy. He reproves us by the Spirit constantly at work in our hearts. He reproves by the Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures, as they are preached and taught and read. He's constantly working. He that being often reproved. And next we see the stubborn rebellion in the passage. Proverbs chapter 21, he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck. Now the image of this passage is very familiar to us. If we feel ourselves being mistreated in some way, threatened, somebody is threatening us. Uh, we have that uh, way of describing, uh, uh, of conducting ourselves that we call bowing up on somebody. You know what that means? Yeah. Man, what do we do when we bow up on somebody? Ask any parent. They've got teenage boys. They know what it's like to be bowed up on. I tell you, mm. that boy doesn't have to say a thing. You're just liable to have a spanking in your future just because all you did was what? You bowed up. We recognize it. We see it. We see it anywhere. Anybody does that. Anything going on and somebody just suddenly just... You see it on their face. They're hardening their neck. That's part of what they do when they bow up. 
That's one thing for a teenage uh, boy or girl. Girls can do it too. To bow up on their mom and daddy. And let me just tell you all teenagers, if you're doing it, you need to quit. Uh, that's part of what God's talking about in this passage. But as bad as it is for kids to bow up on their parents, how bad is it for somebody to bow up on God? God reads that language very well. He that being often rebuked, but he hardens his neck. Now sometimes we prefer to use a kind of a passive-aggressive approach to God's rebuke. There are times when we get angry, maybe, yeah, times when we maybe get hostile and bow up. And, but more than likely, we just turn our back or use that good passive-aggressive resistance, uh, the silent treatment. Procrastination. Procrastination. Not right now. We put him off. Though God is rebuking us and telling us of our need for salvation, not this morning, not right now, some other day, some other time, but not right now. It's possible to give God then and His people uh, just a, a, a simple avoidance. Don't want to be around them. Don't want to be around church. Don't want to go to God. Go, go. Don't want to hear the Bible. Don't want to even see the Bible and fill our life then up with so many amusements, so many things to take our minds in so many different directions that we don't think about God and don't think about the things that God is wooing us to. Our stubborn rebellion whether actively just being hostile toward God and many re, uh, are, are responding toward Him in that way, or whether it's just more passive. Just, no. Just turn her back. Stay away. Not today. He that being often rebuked, often rebuked, Stubborn rebellion hardens his neck. Then the sudden destruction. He will suddenly, the Bible says, be destroyed. And there's no easy way to say this. The word destruction in this passage refers to death. It speaks of dying. He that being often rebuked and hardened his neck shall suddenly be destroyed. We might wonder about the suddenness of death. After all, you know, I'm just a young man. I, I'm in my 20s. I'm in my 30s. Man, I, I've got a whole life to live. i got plenty of time. But now, do you ever think about what it was like to, to talk to the eternal God about how that I've got plenty of time because I've got 70 years? Just think about that for a moment and then join with me as we read what James described. He gave the classic description of this in James chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. I could not even begin to tell you this morning all the times I've shook hands with people on Sunday morning who said, I'll see you next week, preacher. Never saw them again. Good people, godly people, they intended to be here next Sunday, but death happened in between. How many times you said goodbye to somebody that you didn't know you said goodbye? 
is the last time you're ever going to see him. And suddenly the word comes. They're gone. They're gone. God warns us that eternity is forever. And the best that we have, 70, 80 years, is just like that, and it's gone. There's eternity. Right here in Proverbs 27 and 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. The biggest lie we ever tell ourselves is tomorrow. The biggest way that we waste our life is convincing ourselves, I have plenty of time. Suddenly be destroyed, be destroyed refers to the certainty of death. And God knows it if we don't. He that being often reproved and hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed. And then the settled destiny. And that without remedy. As death claims you, so eternity claims you. As death finds you, eternity claims you forever. And as is the case with almost everything else in Proverbs chapter 29, and as we begin to think about God's dealings with humanity, man has wrestled with God's ideas and what God actually says. Uh, some people have imposed their ideas on the Christian faith so as to create an eternity where people get a second chance. But I want you to notice these words, without remedy. As death finds you, eternity claims you forever. Forever. Jesus preached a lot about hell, although some people find it so offensive that they, uh, the, the whole idea of hell to them is unthinkable. But Jesus himself said, Matthew 23 and 33, serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Without remedy means that as death finds you, so eternity is going to keep you. I want you to notice several passages, and we'll be done. Matthew 25 and 46, Jesus said, These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And if we believe there's an eternal heaven, then according to Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46, you also have to believe there's an eternal hell. And there is. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2 then says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Why is that? Because tomorrow only exists on a fool's calendar. There's no such thing really as tomorrow. The only time that we have is the now. Now is the time of salvation. Hebrews 9, 27 says that it's appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. I want to remind you this morning 
that this sober, solemn passage out of the Old Testament that gives us such a serious, serious warning, that it has me trembling when I stand up and begin this sermon, and my voice trembles because it's so serious, and it's so in our face. He that being often reproved and hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. But that solemn warning is set against the marvelous truth of redemption through Jesus Christ. And you really don't understand why God would put such a serious warning to us if we don't understand His great work of redemption on our behalf. God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God is working in that way because there's only, while there's one God, there's only one mediator between God and man. There's only one way to be saved. But through that one way to be saved, anybody, any man, any woman, any boy, any girl, anywhere can be Saved. Oh, this morning, I set before you all the truth of life, eternal life, and the truth of eternal condemnation. With a simple invitation, whosoever believeth on him, that's Jesus Christ, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? You say, well, yes, Brother Rich, I've done that. And I'm sure the majority of the people in this service have done that. You say, why do you preach sermons like this then to save people? Because you're around people who aren't saved all the time. Some of their objections to the message of Jesus Christ are the objections I've brought to you today so that you could see how you can respond to those. How could God say? That there's only one way to be saved. Considering the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing else makes sense. I've often considered what John R. W. Stott wrote many years ago. When he said, I myself could never believe in God were it not for the cross. The further I go in this study, the more I believe that. If you understand the cross, if you see the cross... And what God does and is doing makes a lot of sense. If you take that out of your thinking, then all you see is just blackness and darkness. But the reality of the cross is that God loved us enough to do that for us. And we have to receive it. Would you do that today? Let's stand together, please.